Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. <clears throat> All right, we're back. Uh, it's episode 235. It's 28 Feb. And tomorrow's a leap year, right? So there's actually a 29 Feb. Let's see, 10 stories tonight. Very good episode. A lot of stuff from Ukraine. Four stories from Australia, or three or four. And the Army's new force structure <clears throat> is kind of out. Jen Judson did a good article on it, and there's a white paper. We'll cover a little bit of that. But we'll start with Centcom X, uh, Twitter, whatever. 27 Feb, Red Sea update on 27 Feb, which was yesterday. Between the hours of 9.50 p.m. and 10.55 p.m. local time, U.S. aircraft and a coalition warship shot down five Iranian back Houthi one-way, one-way attack unmanned aerial vehicles. I'm sorry. In the Red Sea, CENTCOM forces identified these UAVs originating from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen and determined they presented an imminent threat to merchant vessels and the U.S. Navy and coalition ships in the region. So that's five Iranian uh, UAVs shot down. Next, <clears throat> only one Israel story tonight. This is from Times of Israel, 28 Feb, today. Hamas chief claims flexibility in truce talks, calls for Ramadan, Ramadan march on Jerusalem. Uh, Hamas chief Ismail Haniya, H-A-N-I-Y-E-H, <clears throat> I can't say his name probably, Claimed on Wednesday, today, the Islamist terror group was showing great flexibility in negotiations with Israel over a potential hostage release deal, but at the same time was ready to continue fighting. In a televised speech, Hanea called on Palestinians in Jerusalem and the West Bank to march on Al-Aqsa Mosque to pray on the first day of Ramadan on 10 March. Uh, Jerusalem's Temple Mount is the holiest place in Judaism, where two biblical temples once stood in Al-Aqsa Al-Aqsa Mosque is located there also and is the third holiest site in Islam, making it a central flashpoint in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which everybody knows. <clears throat> Excuse me. Israel said on Monday it would allow Ramadan prayers at the mosque during the upcoming holy month, but there should be limits according to security needs, setting a potential stage for possible clashes if Palestinians take up Hanayi's call. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden said on Monday he hoped that a deal between Israel and Hamas will be agreed upon by next Monday, allowing for temporary ceasefire in Gaza and the release of hostages held by Hamas since 7 October. Despite President Biden's optimism, Hamas and Israel appear to be far from seeing eye to eye on the terms of the deal, which purportedly includes a six-week pause in fighting and the release of some 40 hostages in exchange for 400 Palestinian security prisoners held by Israel. An unsourced ra- army radio report on Wednesday said Hamas representatives had termed the proposed outline presented by mediators, quote, a Zionist document, and objected to the fact that it did not accede to Hamas's demand for the end of the war, which is a non-starter for Israel, and did not include an Israeli agreement for the full return 
of northern Gaza by internally displaced residents and envisioned what the group saw as too few Palestinian prisoners to be freed in return for the hostages. At the same time, Hamas is reportedly yet to provide Israel with the list of living hostages that it holds, and Israeli sources have said negotiations cannot proceed without it. Israel's, Israel's security cabinet is expected to meet on Thursday evening amid efforts to secure the deal. Despite the slow pace of negotiations, Egypt's President al-Sisi expressed hope on Wednesday afternoon that a deal would soon be reached. Here's a quote from him. We hope that in the coming days we will reach a ceasefire and that there will be real relief for the people of Gaza. Uh, back to Haniye. <clears throat> I'm messing his name up. In his speech, he called on the self-styled axis of resistance, which consists of Iran-backed Hezbollah in Lebanon, Houthis in Yemen, and the Islamic resistance in Iraq, as well as Arab states to step up support for the Palestinians in Gaza. He says it is the duty of the Arab and Islamic nations to take the initiative to break the starvation conspiracy in Gaza. Uh, let's see what else. This is interesting here. While, when the, while the war has no clearing in sight, representatives of Hamas and Fatah are expected to meet in Moscow on Thursday tomorrow to discuss the formation of a unified Palestinian government and the rebuilding of Gaza. That came from the RIA state news agency citing the Palestinian ambassador to Russia. Russia Deputy Foreign Minister Bogdanov also confirmed the news agency that a meeting was planned. So they're going to Russia. And that's it for that. That's our only Israel story for today. Uh, Next, we've got a couple from Ukraine. This is from I-24 News, which I think is Israel News, 25 Feb. A couple days old, this story, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, Ukraine mulls inviting Russia to peace summit hosted by Switzerland, Um, which is, you know, they haven't talked since Istanbul. I think that was where it was in Turkey a couple years ago. Russia and Ukraine hasn't sat down. Uh, the only thing they've been trading over the last two years is missiles, basically, and uh, tank fire and, and all that. So now <clears throat> there's going to be another, reportedly, uh, something in Switzerland. I think the Russians might actually be invited, which you figured that's a way to work, right? So Ukraine is considering inviting Russia to a peace summit aimed at discussing Ukrainian President Zelensky's proposed peace plan, the summit set to be hosted in Switzerland, signals a potential breakthrough in diplomatic efforts to end Moscow's two-year invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Andrei Yermak, chief of staff to President Zelensky, revealed Ukraine's invitation to intention to extend an invitation to Russia during a televised conference in Kiev. He stated, is it, it is possible that we invite representatives of the Russian Federation to present the plan to them in case whoever represents the aggressor country at that moment really wants to end this war and return it to a just peace. However, Kiev has reiterated its stance that it will not engage in discussions with Moscow until all Russian troops have vacated Ukrainian soil. The announcement comes amid skepticism from the Kremlin which dismissed the possibility of the current peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. The Kremlin labeled Kiev's peace plan absurd due to its exclusion of Russia from the negotiations. That's it. But at least there's some sort of, I mean, that's the first time in a long time that Ukraine has even considered talking with Russia. 
So I don't know. That means that's some good news there. Uh, next, here's a odd story from BBC. Lou Newton and Lipka Pelham. NATO allies reject Emmanuel Macron's idea of troops to Ukraine. I heard this. I heard this the other day that France has not ruled out sending NATO, or I'm sorry, not NATO, but EU, EU troops to to Ukraine. The, uh, I don't know. I, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Uh, several NATO countries, including U.S., Germany, and U.K., have ruled out deploying ground troops to Ukraine after French President Emmanuel Macron said nothing should be excluded. Mr. Macron said there was no consensus on sending Western soldiers to Ukraine. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov has warned of direct conflict if NATO troops deploy there. Russian forces have recently made gains in Ukraine, and Kiev has urgently appealed for more weapons. Mr. Macron told a news conference on Monday evening, we should not exclude that there might be a need for security that then justifies some elements of deployment. But I've told you very clearly what France maintains its position, which is a strategic ambiguity that I stand by, whatever the hell that means. Uh, the French leader was speaking in Paris, which is hosting a crisis meeting in support of Ukraine, attended by the heads of European states as well as the United States and Canada. Uh, let's see. Mr. Macron's comments prompted responses from other European and NATO member countries. U.S. President Joe Biden believes the path to victory is providing aid so Ukrainian troops will have the weapons and ammunition they need to defend themselves. President Biden has made clear that the United States will not send troops to fight in Ukraine. German Chancellor Schultz said there has been no change to the agreed position that, Euro that no European country or NATO member state would send troops to Ukraine. The U.K. Prime Minister uh, spokesman said the country has no plans for a large-scale military deployment to Ukraine beyond the small number of personnel already training Ukrainian forces. The Office of Italian Prime Minister Maloney said Italy does not, Italy, Italy's support does not include the presence of troops from European or NATO states on Ukraine territory. Uh, back to Russia, Mr. Peskov, on behalf of the Kremlin, said Mr. Macron's suggestion a very important new element added it was absolutely not in the interest of NATO members. And in that case, we need to talk not about the probability, but about the inevitability of a direct conflict. Earlier, NATO Secretary Stoltenberg denied considering whether troops would be sent to Ukraine, although he insisted the alliance would continue to support Ukraine, which is not a NATO member. That position has been echoed by a number of NATO member states, including Spain, Poland, and the Czech Republic. And I'll stop there. So uh, France wants to send troops to Ukraine by themselves. I say go for it, but I don't think they will. Uh, so Ukraine peace, some sort of negotiations, perhaps. Uh, NATO troops to Ukraine, not going to happen, I don't think. Now, here's something. Uh, this is a Ukraine-Australia story. The first of our Australia stories, and they all revolve around the Taipan helicopter. Uh, even this one. So Ukraine asked Australia for tanks, transport vehicles, and new authorities. Colin Clark, 28 Feb. Uh, the backdrop of this is I think the Ukrainian ambassador is in Australia. So in an, an emotional presentation today, 28 Feb, in front of key Australian defense officials, the Ukrainian ambassador and the head of an organization representing Ukrainians across Australia appealed for tanks, Taipan helicopters, money, and a change in how Australia considers Ukrainian aid. 
Ukraine is beginning to lose some ground to a better armed and larger force of Russia. Casualties are high and the manpower pool is not growing. And the U.S. Congress has so far refused to approve the single biggest tranche of international help for Ukraine. Uh, Here's something from the Ukraine ambassador in Australia. Yes, at this rate, we can slowly keep going. But is, is that acceptable? For how many years should this war drag on? Question mark. Um, he said this at the Canberra's National Press Club to an audience that included the Australian Defense Minister Richard Marlis, the Shadow Defense Minister Andre Hasty, Hasty, and the National Defense Press. Uh, he continues, "We need more, more of everything. We need enough to end this war and to defeat Russia invasion. Hanging on is not enough." By the end of 2023, Australia had donated 910 million dollars. U.S. dollars, I assume, in overall assistance to Ukraine, of which $730 million counted as military support, according to a government fact sheet. Ukraine ambassador prodded Marlis directly, noting that the defense minister has said he'd like to visit Ukraine. And here's another quote. I know that he's interested in doing that. He told me that a long time ago, and we hope that there will be an opportunity for him to visit the country, meaning Ukraine. Australia when it decided decommission, now here we're getting to these helicopters, which we've talked about um, before. Real quick, these Taipan helicopters, uh, they weren't making it. They weren't doing the job Australia wanted. So they said, no more of this. We don't like these helicopters. Let's just buy Blackhawks. Perhaps I think they used Blackhawks before. Uh, then they got these Taipans, and now they want to go back to Blackhawks. That's the backdrop. So I'm going to continue with the article. Australia went and decided to decommission its fleet of 43 Taipan helicopters after a fatal crash, was asked by Ukraine to donate those helicopters to Ukraine. Australia said instead it would strip them and bury them. I was like, bury them? What? That's bury them. Literally bury them. Arguing that was in the interest of the taxpayer that no country had indicated it would buy them. In addition, the Taipans, Ukraine has made an interest in obtaining... Australia's aging Abrams tanks with the ambassador reiterating the hope today that they would get the country's the entire fleet of M1A1 tanks, which are due to be replaced. So they want the tanks and they want the helicopters, basically. Now, you might be thinking, bury the helicopters. I thought it was a typo, but I did some digging. <laughs> I did some digging to check the buried story. And here's a story from Colin Clark from 18 January. Australia reveals why it won't be sending grounded Taipan helicopters to, to Ukraine. So we got, we've got some digging going on for buried helicopters that were grounded. You can't make this up. Colin Clark, 18 Jan. The strange tale of Australia's decision to disassemble and bury the roughly $1 billion fleet of permanently grounded Taipan helicopters has finally been discussed in detail by a government official after almost one month after the news story broke. Uh, let's see. The saga had prompted criticism from the Department of Defense's persistent secrecy, including by a recently retired two-star general, a rare breaking of ranks in the Australian defense establishment. Here's kind of the backstory. It all began when the editor of Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, Kim Bergman, decided to try and ruin everyone's Christmas holiday by running a story on 21 December about the disposal and in an update, Ukraine's apparent request for them to 
requests for them prior to the original story's publication. We're still talking about the helicopters. They're going to they're gonna bury them, but Ukraine wants them. Uh, but as with almost everything connected to the Taipan story, the Australian government remained mute, declining to say anything uh, publicly that months before it had made the decision to dismantle the helicopter, sell whatever parts could be sold, and then bury the broken airframes. We talked about selling the parts. You know, I remember that. Finally, after one small mention of the Taipans a few days ago, a defense official, the government today directly and in detail discussed what was happening and why. Uh, here's the Minister for Defense Procurement, Pat Conroy, said in an interview, Ukraine made an official request for the MH, MRH-90s, the Taipans, in December, despite the, despite the aircraft's well-documented safety and operational concerns. He said the government made the decision to print, permanently ground the Airbus helicopter fleet, fleet in September last year and replace them with American-made Blackhawks. Officials contacted Airbus to find out if any countries were interested in buying the Taipan airframes. We talked about all this on, on this show. And uh, Conroy continues, there was zero interest in buying the airframes. Therefore, the best value for the taxpayers was to disassemble the aircraft and begin selling the spare parts. We talked about that. Because the other option would have been to pay millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to Airbus Australia to maintain these aircraft in a flying condition when there was no prospect that they would be flying again for the Australian Army. He continues, I think. So by the time Kiev's request came through, Australia was three months into the Taipan disposal strategy and three months after any maintenance had ceased. Uh, almost done here. Australia is the most recent national customer to scrap the use of the helos, joining Norway and Sweden after those countries said they experienced low availability rates and high maintenance costs, which translates into they're expensive to fix and they were always broke down and couldn't be operationally effective. That's what I read from that. Please don't sue me, Airbus. I'm just trying to interpret. Am I done? No, I'm not done. <clears throat> There's one more story. Considering consider, uh, talking about these Taipans and burying them and all this stuff. This is from Kim Bergman, the, the supposed reporter that started all this trouble. Asia, Asia Pacific defense reporter. Uh, 8 Feb, like two weeks ago, 20 days ago. Australian Army blocks Taipan helicopters for Ukraine to cover up their own failures. So before I get into this article... Uh, Mrs. Bergman or Mr. Ber Kim Bergman, I don't know if it's a man or woman, whoever they are, uh, they're pretty brutal. It's kind of a, I won't say it's a hit piece, but you can tell right away um, as I get into it what the author thinks about the Australian government or in the Australian army. So here we go. Uh, here's the story. The truth is finally starting to come out. It only took 90 seconds and two questions from Senator David Fawcett to foreign Minister Penny Wong to confirm what many have long suspected. The only thing between desperately needed Taipan helicopters being donated to Ukraine is a veto by the army, which the government is too weak to overrule. Oh, one more thing about the author. I think she's down or he is down with the Taipans. I think they, whoever the author is, likes them. Uh, moving on. The fall exchange took place on Wednesday, 7 February. Senator Fawcett. I'm going to go back and forth here. Senator Fawcett. The reality is that Ukraine first expressed an interest in using the Taipans for casualty evacuation during a meeting I held with them 
during a NATO conference in October of last year, assuming 2023, and I made sure that your government was advised of that interest even before I left Copenhagen and returned to Australia. Minister questioned why didn't the Albanese government even bother to pick up the phone to consult the Ukrainians before deciding on a plan to dig a hole and bury the helicopters. Senator Wong, as I understand it in relation to the matters that the government has acted on advice from defense, the advice I have is the advice from defense is that they, these were not the right platform for Ukraine and the government and defense have made decisions on that basis. Now back to Senator Fawcett, minister. I think the Ukrainians are well-placed to decide what platforms will keep their soldiers alive, in parentheses, shouts of here, here. Now that the government has a formal request from Ukraine and it is established that a number of the helicopters remain airworthy in Townsville, will the Albanese government reverse this decision and donate the aircraft, even in their current state, to allow Ukraine to work with its NATO partners that continue to safely operate the same type of helicopter to establish an aeromedical capability to save the lives of their people. Senator Wong, in relation to this issue, I will continue to take advice from defense about the best way forward on this platform, but also I will make the broader point that the government continues to keep under review the nature and breadth of assistance to Ukraine. That's kind of the back and forth. Now back to the author, what the author thinks. Uh, The arrogance of the Australian army is deciding what is and what is not suitable for Ukraine is beyond breathtaking. The last time she kind of start take some cheap shots at, at, at the army here. Uh, The last time the army was engaged in a conflict of the scale and savagery of the invasion of Ukraine would have been the siege of Tobruk in 1941. And even that was a minor skirmish compared to the ongoing assaults being launched daily by Russian forces. Now that's kind of, I don't know about that. I don't know if that's true. Moving on. Taking into account the static nature of much of the current conflict and the use of mass artillery and the daily casualty rate, one would need to go back to Postendale in the Western Front in late 1970 for a closer analogy. I don't know. I have to take her word for it or his word for it. Uh, keeping going here, the Armed Forces of Ukraine have collected more combat experience in the last two years than the ADF has in the previous six decades. When they say that they can make good make use of the good use of the type type hands, it's ridiculous that the Australian Army, from the comfort of the offices in Canberra, would overrule their request. Before I keep going, be fair to the Australians. Uh, the Australian soldier is known for being very good. They did very well in Vietnam. They did very well in World War II, obviously. So I don't know why you would, why do you need to bring the Australian army into all this? If you're going to beat up somebody, beat up the leadership. Don't beat up the army, right? Moving on. Uh, Ukraine is well aware that the Taipan NH-90 family has an excellent safety record. I'm going to read that again. Ukraine is well aware that the Taipan NH-90 family have an excellent safety record and the sensor mix is unmatched in its class. The motivation is obvious. Senior officer in the army would be highly embarrassed if another nation was able to safely and effectively operate Taipans when they have so mismanaged the program. While the prime com- contractor Airbus helicopters is not completely without blame, the poor availability of the Taipans is largely explained by, and here's, here's why the author thinks the poor availability is number one, not enough trained and qualified aircrew. Number two, not enough spare parts ordered. Number three, unintegrated logistics databases. 
Number four, deliberate unwillingness to learn from successful operators such as New Zealand. Number five, too many geographically diverse centers of support. Number six, a support contract that gave defense a perverse financial incentive to ground the fleet. And number seven, spurious or unnecessary groundings caused by failure to implement updates recommended by the manufacturer. A little bit more. Stay with me here. This list needs to be combined with an unhealthy, illogical, and uncontested obsession on the part of a few senior Army officers to return to the good old days of the Black Hawk helicopters. You don't need to throw eggs at the Black Hawk helicopter. There's a good helicopter. Everybody knows it. Has been, as has been widely reported, the cost of the Australian taxpayer to returning between 20, 12 and 20 helicopters to flying condition would, would be minimal, minimal because there are plenty of volunteers to do the work for free. If even that is unacceptable, then the government should transport helicopters and parts to Europe and let Ukraine's NATO allies, France and Germany, major operators of the Taipan, do the work over there. At about the same time Senator Fawcett's questions, Defense Minister Richard Marlis had an extraordinary softball interview on ABC's afternoon briefing program during which he made a number of inconsistent or misleading claims. And here they are. Claims. Uh, number one, he said he had no idea how much the Taipan parts will be sold for. He then can claim that this strategy represents the best value for money for taxpayers. Next, he claimed that dismantling had commenced before the request from the Ukraine had been received. This is close to a lie. Senator Fawcett advised the government of Ukraine's interest on 10 October. This assembly started on 19 October. Uh, next, maybe they had a contract, right? Who knows? Next, he said on several occasions the Army faces a major capability gap with the early retirement of Taipans was able, unable to say when or how many Blackhawks would be fully operational despite the expedited delivery of 12 of them, even if the first 12 are operational by the end of 2024. That does not replace 45 Taipans. There's no logical explanation for why this has been allowed to happen. And finally, repeated that Australia, not Ukraine, is better placed to decide what is useful and practical for the armed forces of Ukraine. Clearly, the Australian army has convinced the government to fully back their strategy of destroying Taipans simply to stop anyone else from using them. In their minds, the fate of Ukraine is far less important than covering up for their own incompetence and mismanagement. I mean, fireballs, throwing fireballs. And that's it. So that's the whole sordid story, weird, wacky, wild story of burying Taipans and Ukraine and blah, blah, blah. I'm exhausted. I hope I never see this again. Next. Uh... Oh, I'm not done with Australia. We got one more. Australia to, this is from breaking, uh, I'm sorry, Defense News, Gordon Arthur, Australia to more than double naval surface fleet, grow defense budget. The Royal Australian Navy will have its largest fleet since the end of World War II if it implements recommendations from a new independent review of its surface combat ships. The government's enhanced lethality surface combatant fleet review released on 20 Feb advocates for a flotilla of 26 warships more than double the 11 holes the service currently possesses. The government has also accepted recommendations except for one regarding the continuation of upgrading for aging Anzac-class frigates. Here is a quote from the Chief of Navy Vice Admiral Mark Hammond. 
He said the size, lethality, and capabilities of the future surface combatant fleet ensures our Navy is equipped to meet the evolving strategic challenges of our region. Here's the plan to supplement the forthcoming nuclear-powered submarine submarines, of course, under AUKUS. The future surface combat fleet will feature nine so-called Tier 1 destroyers and frigates, 11 smaller Tier 2 frigates, and six optionally manned vehicle uh, vessels. So if you add 9 and 11 and 6, you get 26. There's your 26 warships. Uh, a little bit about them. Not very much. I won't spend much time on this. Tier 1 vessels will comprise of three existing Hobart-class air warfare destroyers to receive an upgrade to Aegis combat system and installation of Tomahawk missiles and six new Hunter anti-submarine frigates. BAE Systems were originally supposed to produce nine frigates with the first to be delivered, I'm sorry, commissioned in 2034. Australia plans to retire two ANZAC-class frigates by 2026, leaving six in service supplemented by the first new general-purpose frigate in 2030. Uh, with pending shortfalls, a review recommended commissioning 11 general-purpose frigates at least the size of ANZACs to provide maritime, land strike, air defense, and escort capabilities. Australia plans to procure the first three frigates from overseas with the remainder constructed at Henderson, Western Australia. The Navy has narrowed contenders to, to these four. Germany's Meko A200, Japan's Mogami class, South Korea's FFX Batch 2 and 3, and Spain's Alpha 3000. The government will make a selection next year with first delivery in 2030. Uh, Defense Minister Richard Marley says the entire plan is fully funded thanks to an additional $11.1 billion Australian, which is allocated over the next decade, including $1.7 billion Australian over the next four years. That's it. Uh, while we're in the Pacific, I got two more stories. What am I doing on time? Uh, we're going to go a little bit long tonight. Two more stories. The first one is short. The next one is not much not too much longer. Uh, Singapore to buy eight F-35As, expanding their fleet to 20. Look at Singapore. Singapore got 20, going to have 20 F-35s, and they use the B model too. Uh, report that Singapore's Air Force will buy eight F-35 stealth jets, growing its overall joint strike fighter fleet to 20. From a post on X, the defense minister from Singapore said eight F-35s would supplement an existing order for 12 F-35Bs. B is like the, uh, the vertical takeoff ones. Uh, the A variant is designed for conventional takeoff and landings where the B houses a fan, lift fan to facilitate short takeoff and, and vertical landing. Not, yeah. Uh, here's a quote from the defense minister. Steady defense spending allowed this calculated decision including the midlife upgrade of F-16s before they are progressively drawn down from mid-2030s onwards and replaced by F-35s. A request by Singapore's Air Force to upgrade 60 F-16s was approved by the State Department in 2015. So Singapore is pretty smart. They're going to have some really solid F-16s or upgraded F-16s until they transition into the F-35. So they've got a good plan. According to a report in Bloomberg... Singaporean Defense Minister informed the country's parliament today that the jets will be delivered in a 2030 time frame. The planes maker Lockheed Martin says the F-30, first F-35Bs will arrive in 2026. That's not too far away. Uh, countries tend to buy either the A or the B variant of the tri-variant fighter. 
placing Singapore in the ranks of the United States, Italy, and Japan as the only countries that fly both A and B variants. The U.S. Navy, only the U.S. Navy flies the C variant, which is a carrier variant, and I didn't know that, so I learned something today. The move by Singapore underscores the burgeoning international market for the stealth fighter, where several countries have been spurred to modernize their fleets and beef up defense spending in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a growing threat from China and the Indo-Pacific. Strong demand from the stealth fighter should make for a busy production line at Lockheed's Martin in Fort Worth, Texas for much of the decade. But, uh, but experts caution that the world's largest defense contractor could be challenged to deliver the jets in a timely manner, given the demand. They're probably happy about that. Last story. This is an Army story, a domestic story. Is this our first domestic story? I think it is. It is. Uh, and it's a good one. Uh, the Army's uh, force structure has been released, or some of it anyway. And I was wrong. Remember, we talked about this months ago when I said that the SFABs would be chopped. And I'm wrong. They did not chop the SFABs. They chopped pe people from the SFABs, but they did not chop the SFABs. So shows you what I know. Uh, here we go. Here are the winners and losers in U.S. Army's force structure changes from Jim Judson. Great article, 27 Feb yesterday. Uh, the U.S. Army unveiled a white paper detailing how the service plans to shrink the force in some places and grow it in others. This is kind of the important line right here. The current, uh, the Army's current authorized force structure is 445,000 active duty soldiers. But the service was designed for 494. So they got 445, but all the units and organizational structures designed for 494. So they're short, you know, whatever 494 minus 445 is. Uh, the new force structure is meant to bridge the gap, bringing troop levels approximately 470 by FY29. So they're going to cut positions, basically, uh, so they don't have a hollow army. That's kind of the idea. Uh, the documents released on Tuesday. Yesterday comes as the Army continues to transition from counterinsurgency missions to large-scale combat operations against technically advanced adversaries. That's according to Army Secretary Christine Warmoth. She said that on 27 Feb yesterday in Washington, hosted by a defense writers group. Uh, force structure changes are necessary, she said, because the Army is working through a massive modernization effort involving a wide variety of new capabilities coming online now and the next two decades. Uh, from the Army white paper, uh, here's a quote, by bringing force structure and end strength into closer alignment, the Army will ensure its formations are filled at the appropriate level to maintain a high state of readiness. So here's... Should I go with what, what's coming in and what's coming out? I'll go with, I'll stick with the article. This is what's coming in. Uh, major elements in the new force structure will include building out the Army's five theater-level multi-domain task forces. Remember, we talk about these quite often. Uh, the Army has already established three of them. There's two in the Indo-Pacific theater. So there's one of those in Hawaii and one at Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington State. And there's one in the Pacific theater in Germany. So there's your three. The service plans to set up another dedicated MDETF, multi-domain task force, in the Pacific region, and another that is surface re retained to likely focus on U.S. Central Command. So probably, you know, that'll be a force com in the States, probably CONUS, and the other one will be out in the Pacific somewhere. Who knows? I remember they talked about putting one in the Arctic, but that's still kind of Indo-PACOM, right? Anyway, so there, there you go. You're going to get two more 
multi-domain task forces. Uh, the multi-domain task force, just so you remember, has a headquarters headquarters battalion, a multi-domain effects battalion, a long-range fires battalion, an indirect fire protection capability battalion, and a brigade support battalion. Uh, you remember the long-range fires battalion has the two batteries, uh, the, the mid-range and the uh, long-range hypersonic weapon. We talked about that. Uh, more from the white paper, as discussions with allied countries progress over time, the Army will likely forward station elements of MDTFs permanently, such as multi-domain effects and long-range fires battalions to strengthen deterrence, the document said. Uh, the Army is also making investments in force structure, supporting integrated air and missile defense at core and division levels. So here's your new additions also. Four indirect fire protection capability battalions, uh, in addition to the ones that are in the multi-domain task force, providing short to medium range capability to defend against unmanned aerial systems, cruise missiles, rockets, artillery, mortars. Nine counter UAS batteries nested within the IFPCs and division air defense battalions. Does anybody remember the air defense battalions? Uh, moving on. And four additional MSHORAD, which is maneuver short range air defense battalions, which counter low altitude aerial threats including UAS rotary wing, wing, rotary wing aircraft and fixed wing aircraft. Of course, those MSHORADs are built on strikers. So new additions, basically, I'll get to that in a minute. Now, what's out? This is what's weird to me. Uh, the Army will reallocate engineer assets at the brigade combat team level to the division echelon. So all the brigades, there are 58 of them. They're taking the engineer battalion out and putting it battalion uh, back at division level. Uh, anyone who served in the Army a long time ago, my my generation, would remember that. So that's one thing. Next is they're going to, this is another big one. They're going to inactivate cavalry squadrons at CONUS-based IBCTs, infantry brigade combat teams, and striker brigade combat teams. And then in the infantry brigade combat teams, they're going to take the Delta Company, the weapons company, and turn it into a platoon. Uh, they're not done yet. So... The Army also observed in the past that Special Operations Forces had doubled in size in the past 20 years. So they're going to reduce those. The service concluded the structure could be reduced by 3,000 spaces. Uh, specific reductions will be made on an approach that ensures unique capabilities are retained. Positions and headquarters elements that are historically vacant or hard to fill will be prioritized for reduction. So they're not just going to take 3,000 from across the board. They're going to cherry pick the ones that need to go basically so in summary i know that's a lot 38 minutes i'm going to summarize it in the next one minute so what's out conus cavalry squadrons are out at nine ibcts and seven striker formations so heck there's only eight striker formations there's only one overseas so the seven conus ones lose their cavalry squadron the nine infantry brigade combat teams conus lose their cavalry squadron. So the o, the Oconus uh, IBCTs and strikers keep theirs, apparently. Uh, the IBCTs lose their Delta Company, which is the heavy weapons company. I don't know if that's across all IBCTs or just the Oconus ones. I think it's across all of them. So you go from Delta Company to a platoon. Probably they'll throw it under HHC, my guess. Uh, next, they're going to eliminate some positions in the SFABs, but they don't say which ones. And they don't say the SFABs are going away. They just say they're going to cut some position in the SFABs. 
Next, they're going to take engineer battalions from BCTs and they're going to move them to division. But I have a question. What about your separate brigades? Like the 173rd and 3rd, 3rd Brigade, 10th Mountain at, at Fort Johnson. What are you going to do with those? You're just going to, yeah. So what happens to those battalions? They just go away forever? I don't know. And then they're going to take away up to 3,000 special forces positions. Uh, how about this? They're going to take away up to 3,000 spaces and SOF units. They didn't say special forces positions. Now, what are you going to get added? You're going to get uh, two more multi-domain task forces to have five. One will be in Indo-PACOM. One will be in CENTCOM. You're going to get four more IFPC battalions. You're going to get nine more batteries for counter-EOS, and you're going to get four more M-Shorad battalions. That's what you get. That's basically a, a, a summary of what I read. Um, anyway, I should have just stuck to the article. She does a better job explaining it than I do. That's it. 40 minutes. A long, long episode. A little bit longer than I wanted to do, but I don't know. I decided to go for it. So that's it. Episode 235 is in the books. Thank you very much for listening and good night.